right, welcome back to the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Prairie Pod. It is time for episode four today, a legacy of conservation at Lacaparl. And the voice you're listening to is Megan Benich. I'm a regional ecologist with the DNR. I'm super excited to be here. Me too. I'm Jessica Peterson. I'm the Prairie Habitat Research Scientist for the DNR. And we're sitting here in our lovely New Ulm uh, recording studio with Dave Traba. Dave, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Dave Traba, the Regional Wildlife Manager for the Division of Fish and Wildlife in the Southern Region. Happy to be here today. We're happy you're here too, Dave. We've already been sharing a lot of laughs and a lot of ridiculousness that we had to scrub out of the podcast, but don't worry, there will be more for you to listen to during this. So we're taking a little bit of a different tack during today's podcast, and instead of featuring a prairie necessarily or a very specific aspect of restoration today we're going to feature a very special conservationist woo woo so and that conservationist is Dave Trouble so just in case there was any suspense there we, we <laughs> want to make sure you know why we invited Dave here so Dave has a long legacy with the DNR so Dave has worked for the Lacaparral Wildlife Management Area as the manager for over 24 years that's a long time and throughout that time, he gained a lot of knowledge, and we we're going to hope to tap into that today. So, Dave, we're just going to jump right in here. This is how this works. That sounds good. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. You're excited. He's yep. got his Ducks Unlimited vest on. I'm not sure how I feel about that when we're doing our DNR recording, but it, we are all about partnership on the prairie. That's how we roll. And a PF mug. <laughs> yeah, and he's got a Peasants River mug. So, really, it's not the DNR talking to you today. Right. It's it's the it's the suite. And so, if you feel left out, we you know, because we can't just name all of our partners right now, just know that you're here in solidarity with us. Well, right. I could be wearing my Prairie Chicken Society hat and my shirt tail. <laughs> There you go. Partnership. Demonstrates the importance of partnership. He's basically wearing the prairie plant right now. That's right. So, Dave, jump right in. Tell us a little bit about you. Who are you? Background, yeah. Hey, I grew up in uh, southeast Wisconsin, so go Packers. That's ingrained in you. You Oh, boy. uh, I get that. I'll just say that right now. So, uh, but, you know, um, know, probably pretty typical. Grew up in a very rural area, classic Wisconsin. I mean, when I grew up, it was red dairy barns. And uh, milk cows and alfalfa and corn. I really, I never, I did not know what a soybean plant was till I moved to Minnesota. And I kid you not, it was all alfalfa and corn and uh, people milking 45 uh, head dairy farms. But long story short, I grew up next to the Horicon Marsh and the Thressa Marsh. And back in that day, Horicon Marsh was like lack of you know, over 500,000 geese. Mm. A lot of waterfalls, so I grew up in a family of hunting tradition, and my fondest memories will be all with my grandpa, dad, and my brothers hunting uh, waterfall and and uh, the abundance we had. And and I'm probably one of the few people where, when I was a sophomore in high school, I knew I wanted to be a wildlife manager. I mean, I and what really sold it for me, there was a poster of you know UW Stevens Point. There was a person holding two bear cubs. And I looked at that and I said, that's what I want to do. So when I was a sophomore in high school, I was reading Elk of North America, white-tailed deer, anything with ecology. And then one of our science teachers was also, um, he later uh, worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but he was our science teacher. And so we would go out on trips and he would see a flock or whatever, he'd take out his notebook and write it down. So he was also a mentor too. 
But I did live the, if you will, live the dream once at UW Stevens Point. I ended up doing my master's degree on black bears. So, you know, five, six years later, I was holding bear cubs just like in the photo. And and then... Uh, they swapped out the picture, right? And yeah, that's right. Yeah. Leave. But, you know, I was living the dream. Um Working with, I wanted to be a northern forest wildlife manager, which is an interesting take because oh. I ended up on the prairie. So we'll we'll talk about that transition. Yeah, we want to know how many bear cubs you've held at Lacaparo. Yeah, yeah, none. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but then I spent a year working for uh, uh, the Forest Service up in Ely, Minnesota, really living the dream, doing research on on bears, and and I was again. Um, real uh just i wanted to be a northern forest wildlife manager so my funny story is how i got to lack of pearl on the prairie was my wife basically said dave we're poor get a real job <laughs> and so that's what i did i actually turned down a number of dnr job interviews because i was going to stay up there and work for the forest service mm -hmm. for another year and my wife said, "We're no, we're real poor. We had my son was two, and I was making seven dollars and twenty-five cents. We're ten hours away from any family support. Again, I was living the dream. I worked seven days a week. She was home with her two-year-old. So when I, I would like to say, <laughs> I would like to say I landed that lack of pearl by design. That I was yep. knew everything about it. But That's I right. went down to that interview cold. I couldn't even tell you if there were geese at lack of pearl when I applied. And I, so I still wake up." in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, thinking how lucky I was to land at Laquaparo. Yeah. So now I think we probably want to talk about how do we pronounce Laquaparo? Yeah, yeah, we sure do. So this is like the, this is the thing in the DNR. So everybody that you talk to, they have a different <laughs> yeah. way of saying it. It's like some people are like, oh, have you been down to Laquaparo? Some people say Parlay, which I'm pretty sure is real wrong. And then other people say Laquaparo. And then some people say Lac, some people say Lac. So we want to get we want to get from the real expert here. Like, how do you really say it? Well, there is there have been uh, books written on this. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but it is a small queue. You will get in fights in the local in the Lacquaparo area. Now I say Lacquaparo, but it's a French word. You say a qua. Lacqua. Like but I think probably yeah. if it would be French, it'd be Lacqui, and I would say maybe okay. Parley is correct too. Oh. So but in preparation for today, I went on Google. And we'd always know that Google is right, right? <laughs> and I asked it. I asked the Google, how do you pronounce Lacaparle? And it was Lacquiparle. Um, so it's French, right? So yep. what does what does it mean? You know? A lake that speaks. So Aww. now if you were to talk to the locals today, they will say, oh, it's lake that speaks because of all the Canada geese and they're all their honking, the noise they make. Wrong. Has nothing to do with that. I mean, 1800s, there weren't geese at Lacquaparo. <laughs> it had to do with actual white, the white sand. Think of this the white sand at Lacquaparo. And when the waves would crash upon it, it made this vibrating noise, oh. this musical noise. That's how the lake got its name. Oh. You won't find white sand at Lacquaparo today, but that's another podcast for another day. And why oh that my is. Gosh. So. Well, I can wow. already tell we're going to run long. <laughs> <laughs> White sand podcast. White sand. Add it to our list. White sand podcast. The beaches of Lacquaparo that are never more. Like, <laughs> sorry, I'm going off script. So tell us a little bit more about. Give us a picture of the landscape of Lacquaparo. What does it look like? What paint us? A, paint us a beautiful picture. Sure. It's uh, it's the headwaters up the up, upper Minnesota River Valley. 
I mean, so the defining feature when we say LACPRO, we're really talking to LACPRO WMA. It is the glacial terrace, if you will, alongside LACPRO Lake and, and Marsh Lake. So today, the the unit is 33,000 acres in size. Whew. And then when you add in the Big Stone National Wildlife Refuge, you're up around 55,000 acres of public land. If you add in the scattering of WMAs and waterfall production areas, SNAs nearby, you have over 80,000 acres of public land within like an hour of the refuge headquarters, which when you think of southern region, that's pretty phenomenal. And if you get all of them working in concert. Now, the, the main features of the unit is Lackborough Lake and Marsh Lake, and those were historic lakes. Uh, prior to the, you know, coming in the WPA, your work project administration era and putting the dams in. You know, so you had very dynamic shallow lake systems, very functional, but we came in the 30s and we made them deeper water bodies. But they are still the main, main features. And then you have prairie extending out from those, from those lakes and stuff. So um, what makes it unique today, it's uh, we have broad stretches of, of true native prairie. There's Chippewa Prairie, for example. You can walk for six miles, never hit a road, and still be on native sod the entire way. That's pretty rare. Um, so that's you know some of the things. And the wildlife, the, just the, the birds, the migration, it's, it's a great place for that. So It's one of the first prairies I went to when I came to Minnesota. It's where I met Megan. For the first time, oh, was it Chippewa Prairie? Oh, we did Prairie? meet at Chippewa yeah. Prairies. Yeah. Oh, that was the unfortunate rock incident. And we we camped oh, yeah. at Lake Parl. We did. We camped yeah. at uh, We camped Lackfarl. there. Yeah. That was the beginning of Megan and Jess, the friendship that just... <laughs> it's a beautiful campsite that overlooks the, the reservoir, the lake. the lake, yeah. Yeah, it was really nice. Dave actually recommended that campsite <clears throat> to us. So, Dave, you had a fundamental role in starting my friendship with Jess. Well, and it's not you know that friendship. the fact you had a rock experience is very fitting because really that's what saved the prairie at Lackboro. It is all those rocks, those, those boulders set down by glaciers. It was uh, too rocky to farm, so it stayed in hay or, or grazing uh, land. So, where were you last year when you could have written that on my DNR incident report for the underside of the vehicle? Well. <laughs> Some of us are just smart enough not to drive through a prairie. We we stay on the trails, but well, this was on a designated road. It was on a road. Okay, well, it's a two track. Yeah, it's two track. Okay, two -track. that's why we we drive four by fours with high clearance. But we digress. Some divisions don't have uh, the lap of, live in the lap of luxury like the division of fish and wildlife is accustomed to. <laughs> There's that. So you talked about this. A little bit, like part of what makes Lacroix special is the wildlife there. So we want to know a little bit more in detail. So I have, I want to talk to you about geese, but I also want to talk to you about pelicans. I want to talk to you about some other featured wildlife. So go, kind of give me the gamut here of well, the wildlife highlights. Yeah, I would say this, geese built Lacroix in many ways. Um, With their Bare no, it just, it was the reason that we had our employees, our infrastructure, it all developed around Canada geese. And so in 1957, uh, what happened, you had the lack of health, uh, the flood control project in the 1930s. The state of Minnesota actually went out there and condemned land up to a certain elevation around both Lack Pearl and Marsh Lakes. They, those lands stayed in federal ownership until the 1950s when that land was transferred over to the state of Minnesota to be developed as a wildlife area. Hmm. 
So that was in 1957, and in 1958, we started the Lack of Parole Canada Goose Management Project with Game Refuge Order 274. And I'm serious, it was uh, the number of hunters that came out there and the restoration of giant Canada geese that really made Lack of Parole known for what it is. And we had then the support to acquire land and have the staff to go out and do the management we did. So it all started, I mean, the restoration of Canada geese started at Lack of Parole and Talcott Lake. We actually brought in wing-clip Canada geese. We thought giant Canada geese were, ex, uh, were extirpated, extinct, actually. And so we had a, a, you know, pens down on Rosemont Island, which is a sanctuary area that's off limits. Uh, so then they wing-clipped those birds for three years. Eventually, they, you know, they were um, allowing the, the young to fly mm -hmm. off and come back, kind of. And we actually had a hayloft and I kid you not, a person would be in the hayloft, and if they saw a flock of Canada geese, they played a record. We actually had the record of a geese record. honking, awesome. trying Stop. to get geese to land there. So our goal was to restore giant Canada geese back to Minnesota. Number two was to provide a stop order for migratory geese coming out of Canada. So the first year we had 500 migratory geese. The second year we had 2,000, then we had 5,000, then 10, and then eventually 100,000, 150,000, and we had over 12,000 hunters just coming through our controlled hunt zone blinds to hunt Canada geese. Because back in that day, you could not hunt Canada geese elsewhere in Minnesota. Either you went to Thief Lake, Talcott Lake, or Lacquaparo. And we could go into more detail on the challenges having an, uh, you know, a large goose flock, etc. But And with that, uh, you know, mallards, I mean, the whole gamut of, of waterfall coming through. And then you mentioned uh, pelicans. Uh, another thing we're famous for, we'll, we'll kind of go back and forth with Chase Lakes, out, or North Dakota, excuse me, for a uh, largest breeding pair of white mm -hmm. pelicans. Mm -hmm. But like Canada geese, uh, white pelicans were nearly extirpated from Minnesota. And then Al Gruy, a professor at St. Cloud State University, recorded banded the first two pelicans at Marsh Lake. That was like the first breeding pair. So we went from wow. two pelicans, or one wow. pair, to up to 15,000 breeding pairs. Whoa! So that's the power of getting DDT and other chemicals out of the environment, just like the bald eagles. That's what really allowed pelicans... To restore they're not habitat limited they're they were more limited by uh, chemicals in the environment so oh, that's but we could have 45 minutes talking about geese i'd be happy to but i know <laughs> i think that one of my favorite days that i've ever seen you at work because so often now um so those of you who don't know now dave is the regional manager for the division of fish and wildlife which means that he's often desk bound unfortunately mm -hmm. because he really misses that field time but one of my favorite days i think you escaped back to Lacquaparo. We let you out of the regional office, and I was out there for a meeting or something. And I remember you—you you came in from the field. The wind was blowing like 50 miles an hour or something ridiculous. It was chilly day. It was probably like 35 degrees, and there's Dave with his hair on the sides of his head, <laughs> flying, you know, <laughs> rosy cheeks, and he's <laughs> wearing all of his field gear and he's just like man what a day out at the refuge what a day <laughs> i was just looking at him thinking that's a wildlife biologist folks right there no mistaking him when he's in his uh, khaki pants at the, at the office there he is tried and true so um that being said all that little sentimental story here i mean i know that 
So you talk about how they changed in terms of the numbers increasing. What about now? So we started in 1957. How's the area changed through time and during your tenure as wildlife manager? Where are we at today, both in terms of the landscape and our wildlife population? Well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll stay on geese. Then we will get to prairie. Um, but the biggest change I had is one, you know, and when you say con legacy of conservation, I mean, I'm going to give credit to all the managers that were there. You had Arlen Anderson, who was from 1958 all the way through the 80s. He really was, he was there when they were putting geese in pens. And then he had after that Ken Bonema. And then I, I just followed their, their work and, and picked up where they left off, if you will. And so that's the legacy is really the, the manner, when you think of it right now, Walt Gessler is the, is the wildlife area manager at Lackfrall. So he's the fourth manager since 1958. So when people would tend to come to Lackfrall, they tend to stay there for a long time. But yeah, back in Arlen Anderson's day, he, he would literally say 13th of September, the first migratory geese are going to arrive on the refuge coming out of Canada. And it was like clockwork. On Even when I arrived there on the 13th of September, geese would land. It was. It, it was scary how... Hmm. It was predictable. Set your watch by it. Set your watch. And now, <laughs> and then about in the mid-90s, I know it's now since the 13th of September, you know, very few geese. Mm -hmm. And now it was, it was becoming mid-October before we would see migratory geese arriving on the refuge. We would still get big numbers, you know, 150,000 Canada geese, but they would be arriving, starting to arrive in mid-October, Big numbers in, in November, then they depart on to Missouri. By the time I left, migratory geese weren't leaving Canada until almost Thanksgiving and arriving at Lac Parle. So you pretty much mm. pushed that whole migration back a month and a half, two months wow. from what it was historically. So really our tradition of goose use and the goose hunters were no longer coinciding with geese. Then in later years, our peak numbers our peak numbers out at the refuge now are 22,000 geese. Those birds are staying in Canada or they're just spread out migrating everywhere. And the same thing's happening at Horicon Marsh back in Wisconsin. You go back home, they don't have geese. The geese are just staying north longer. And then when they do migrate, they're migrating over a much broader area. We can Some other day we can talk about why that is going on. But you know, fair enough. Dave, it sounds like you're trying to set yourself up for about like a whole Dave Trauba podcast well, series. We could talk a lot. Of pod it. Where he's like, next time, and then next time. Well, I we got, have 45 minutes. My I theories take time. Four Megan. different episodes that we just focus on Dave Trauba here. Well, no. <laughs> migration would be a good one, but you know, how does the the refuge change? Your next question. Um, our our work has changed. I mean, when we first, when Arlen and, and others, even when I started, there was not the focus on prairie like there is today. There just wasn't. We were just busy with other things. <clears throat> and then I think back in the in the 50s, 60s, there just wasn't, uh, you had more prairie to begin with. And then I think as the science evolved, really our restoration ecology evolved, but more attention started going on on managing landscapes and, and prairie as part of that. So that's where we, we saw a change as well, which I think we'll talk about in more detail. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. What kinds of things do you think you and other managers are doing differently today than you did in the past in terms of restoration and management? What's changed? Well, I think, you know, I, I look like managers or look back to managers like Brad Olson. He just retired two years ago. Steve Merchant that's retired a few years. I mean, Brad Olson, remember, they were 
planting one species grass mix, that was switchgrass, which came from Nebraska. And we still have some of those fields that on the unit they made. Sure. You know, just that was cutting edge at one time. Wow, we're no longer going to see brome and alfalfa. Or now we're going to see that true native and switchgrass is it. And then a big change was, wow, we'll go to five species now. Now we're we're getting there. We're five species, and, and look how tall it grows. That's good. The taller it is, the, and when I first came to Lac Pearl, I thought the taller it is, the better. Mm-hmm. And that's totally wrong because the true prairie was maybe knee high, and that's why your prairie grouse are flyers and not runners. But we digress. Well, so what was the reasoning behind that that feeling that just that you're you're growing a really great stand of grass, or why did you want it tall? Oh, I think it, well, it's what we we knew. I mean, there, mm-hmm. we didn't have the variety of species today. We didn't have no one even thought of planting wildflowers until later on. So we were doing what we were and and sure. growing it tall. That's what our pheasant hunters would want. That's what we would think that deer would want. And I think our understanding of the whole realm of prairie wildlife species and different vegetative heights has come along. We're talking about a lot more, you know, but then we started, we went from five species and it's like, you know, at Lac Pearl, we did have true native prairie we could harvest from. So then there again, Brad Olson, we had combines, we're out harvesting prairie seed. So that was a step ahead too. And then you're starting to get a fall prairie. I mean, when you think of our harvesting, we were combining in the fall, so what did you get? Your stuff that was setting seed in the right. fall. And But again, that was, ooh, well, now we got 25 species in the mix. And about the time I was, you know, uh, you know, midway through the career, then all of a sudden there was other funding available to augment your species mix. But we didn't have ecologists like Megan and you on staff to say, well, we should be looking at these species they bloom early and no one heard of the word pollinator until maybe five years ago or whatever i mean that wasn't in the vocabulary we just weren't thinking pollinators we knew about the invertebrates and yeah don't burn everything this and that but earlier in my career i always take that drip torch because that interior did not burn and darn it all i'm going to turn it all black i'm going to strip that sucker all better <clears throat> we don't do that today don't worry about it. If it goes out, let it go out. That patchiness is what we desire. So Yeah, restoration ecology in general is a really young field. It's yeah. It's just not, it, it's hard. It's hard to study it, and it's, it takes a lot of, there's so many variables that affect these things. And so we're just, it, we're always learning. As, even as we're trying to push the needle, we're, we're all learning at the same time. Oh, yeah. I mean, even the stuff that I did, you know, 16, 17, 18 years ago when I was still in school is way different than what we do now. We still were pushing real tall, thick, dense stands back then. And now I'm like, hey, <laughs> let's let's have five pounds of grass maybe maximum. But diversity, that's where it's at. You guys hear that well, on the podcast all I mean, the time. And, and I'll just add into this uh, point. It, and it's getting harder because we are, mm-hmm. Prairie is a very fragmented landscape nowadays, and, and I tell people, really, we talk about prairie quite a bit, um, and I would try to educate, you know, fifth grade school day, and I take them out there by the office, and it's just a little knob of prairie. How do you instill the what prairie once was, because it's mostly gone, so really you're in love with a ghost, something that no longer exists, and that's, that's really one of the challenges of prairie conservation is how do you have people fall in love with a landscape 
that you really can take them out there and say, here it is. We got a few spots where we can do that. So that's a challenge of prairie conservation in Minnesota. We need those. We need a billboard. We right? need a we billboard. Need, we, need we need a billboard that tugs on those yeah. heartstrings with the little bears. Yeah, and you and and you can appreciate this to really develop that appreciation for prairie. You have to know how all the cogs and how all those little parts are related together. Again, if you take someone out there to look at, oh, that's just grass. No, it's not. It's everything working in concert. And but that's a challenge. Uh, anyways. I just learned I'm in love with a ghost, like deeply in love with it. I might need to go to therapy for this. <laughs> I got real sad. Like I just got real sad. She's real. There's a lot of sad faces, but I'm like I feel, I feel like I'm in love with a real tangible thing, Dave. I mean, I agree with you. It's not the landscape isn't what it was, but I do. I will say this just as a counterpoint to that. Coming from a different state where our remnant prairie exists in cemeteries pretty much alone. Um, and areas that are rocky or flooded historically to come to a state like Minnesota. And while, yes, we only have about 1% of our prairie left, we're still pretty blessed. Like we're more blessed than some other states who have lost so much more. So I feel like being here, I get to be a better ecologist and a better prairie ecologist because I actually do have more public lands that I get to go look at and see prairie much, much more than my previous state, which I'll remain unnamed, <coughs> Indiana. So... Here, I mean, you just, it's, Indiana's a beautiful state, and they have a lot of things going for it, but gosh, Minnesota, like, I can drive 30 minutes and go to public mm -hmm. lands and see prairie, so I just feel, I just feel a little differently having that comparison point, I guess, so we still, there's lots of work to do. I counterpointed you, Dave. Very good, yeah, point taken. <laughs> so, Dave, tell us uh, what the weirdest thing that's happened to you while you were on your job. I had to think real hard on that one. I I struggled on that one. I, I don't know. Back when we were doing the controlled hunt station, everybody had to bring their geese back in, and, and we would weigh and measure them. I mean, every measurement you can think of on geese, and then we'd weigh them. And, and I remember looking, and I mean, there would be some days where I would never leave the scales. We'd have over 100 geese taking all the state blinds alone, which is pretty incredible. But there was a guy standing in line with a cormorant. <laughs> just oh no totally clueless not a good day and uh you know we didn't write him a ticket we just waited and said enjoy i think that was it and then <laughs> and then my job too we we actually had an outhouse a true outhouse there and my job was to clean it so that was the most disgusting part of my job i rather pick up disease outbreaks and deal with that than clean an outhouse so. did you ever find anybody in the bottom of it this is like my worst fear. This is like, so I have this un, this, it's, now you know, this is like one of my traumatizing fears that you go to sit down in a porta potty or an outhouse, and there's somebody below you that reaches up and just hits you. Well, this is like my worst fear. You did mention that you might have to see a therapist, and I would, I would recommend it. <laughs> Seems like you need it. You yeah. just learn life skills on podcasts. My other outhouse fear is that there will be a snake down in there, and it'll come up and bite you again. Same, same. Just I don't know. Something about outhouses really freaked me out. Now you guys know. Just as afraid of fishers. <laughs> I'm afraid of outhouses. Oh boy. So, um, transitioning. 
tell us some of the most important things you've learned on your job. And I know we could talk, you know, that's episode five of your podcast series, but what <laughs> really, like, what are some of the most important things? Because as I feel like as you go through your career, if you're doing it right, you just get smarter because you're enriched by the people around you and you learn more and more and more because you, you're not afraid to try things and you're not afraid to fail. Failing's good within boundaries because it helps you learn. Like I am a much better ecologist now than I ever was. And I hope I can say that, you know, 15 more years out in my career. So I just have to imagine at this point that you have learned so, so, so much and you're super duper smart now. Well, you might be disappointed, but I struggled <laughs> on this one. But, you know, what I would say is for, for young managers, don't be afraid to take risk. Um, try new techniques. Try to learn from them. Document. Uh, but take risk. And I think looking at management, there are some people, someone had to say, I'm going to darn it, I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to plant switchgrass. Mm -hmm. That was a risk. We were, could have been real comfortable doing just, you know, your standard dense nesting cover of brome, alfalfa, and, and what have you. But um, experiment the best you can. I mean, I wish I could, I mean, I could talk a lot about other, you know, mentoring and that type of stuff. But, you know, really just sticking on the habitat stuff. Work hard at it. You know, take pride in your work, but, but take risk. Um, try to blend as much variation as you can into your management as well. I... Uh, I think we're going to maybe talk about that later, but here's a good segue. I, you know, our management in Minnesota, for better or worse, is a spring fireman, prescribed fire in the spring, 15 April to 15 May. Now, oh, we now we pushed the boundaries to go a little bit later. That's not how the true prairie function. So we need to integrate our fire management. We need to integrate, I think, haying into the rotation. We've got to intermix grazing, fire and grazing, and all those things. Try to mix it up the best you can on any given parcel. And I think that's our challenge for managers is to uh, look at all those different uh, management techniques and then integrating them and then make it such a way where it just becomes common and part of what we do and not a special activity like, oh, we're going to go out and graze this. No, grazing is just part of what we do, or haying, or you know, fire management in the fall. And, um, um, and you know, develop a thick skin. You're going to get criticized for any management action you do. And, um, you know, people are going to come back and say, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. So just be prepared to defend what you do. Think that was talking points out ahead of time. Because invariably, if you do, let's say, prescribe fire in the fall, someone's going to write you an email and say, I went out to my favorite hunting spot, and it was burned. Or we hear it on haying. Or I went out there and the grass was short because of grazing. Well, then you need to describe the big picture and how we are rolling those disturbances on throughout the areas. But, yeah, your one WMA was, was grazed, but most likely five miles away there was a unit that wasn't. Um, that type of stuff. Well, so. don't you think that those criticisms like lend itself to you being a better manager overall because you really have to be able to explain why you made the choice you did. And we should be able to do that anyway. Like we should always know why we're doing what we're doing. We shouldn't just do something just to be like, you know, it'd be fun. <laughs> we're not to this prairie. We just throw a match out there to see what happens. I mean, like we should always be kind of thinking through what the consequences are. So I kind of like some of the criticisms are also amusing. The, the acronyms for the DNR are particularly amusing. 
but I think I think it's helpful because it makes you a better manager. Yeah, it can, but it can also take a toll on a person too after a right, while. Where you, you constantly have that, and then you start, then it's real easy to say, "Well, I don't need that," because we all have plenty of work to do. So you could just say, "I don't need that fight. I don't need that stress," and just not do it as a management. I think in the long run, then the resource then suffers. But so then we need to have the support for our staff to go out there and do the good work, and that's where. I guess as a regional manager, I come in where I can try to take some of that heat away and, and do the talking and let the managers focus on the important stuff, getting the actual work done on the in the field. So, Dave, if you had to make a poster of yourself as a regional manager, would you say that you're the, the wildlife biologist and the managers are the baby bears in each <laughs> hand that you're holding? Is no. that a bear? <laughs> no. <laughs> Everybody's cringing. <laughs> I'm cringing. The managers are cringing. I can no, picture I'm not it there. clearly. I yeah, can picture in one hand Nicholas Trauba and the other hand. No. Uh, okay, sorry. That made me laugh at least. No. <laughs> so, Dave, you've accomplished a lot in your career. What's one of the um, your most favorite accomplishments or one that you're most proud of? Well, probably the one that we failed at, and that was the Prairie Chicken Restoration Project. I think I will always go down. We need to... Uh, I'm always haunted. We need to kind of write it up better than we have. Just a lot mm-hmm. of abstracts out there. But um, yeah. Steve Merchant, um, and Steve Merchant was kind of, it was a visionary in the department on prairie management, and, and he did his work on, on prairie chickens. And uh, and we got to talking, saying, hey, you know, what about restoring prairie chickens to uh, lack of pearl at, at some point. And, you know, I felt we had we had the landscape, and it just so happened that Dr. John Tepfer was uh, just finishing a trap and transplant program up in North Dakota, moving uh, prairie chickens from Minnesota into uh, uh, habitat up in the, you know, just kind of west of Fargo countryside, La CRP. And he was successful. They built that. And he had it down where you actually move the males and first get the booming grounds, then you bring the hens in and supplement. So we did that lack of power. And I'll tell you what, at one time, you know, we had 11 different booming grounds. We had over 100 uh, male prairie chickens on 11 different uh, booming grounds. Things were looking up. And then we actually had connectivity with birds in the Northwest. And there was a little postage uh, stamp. TNC property in the middle of Traverse County. And we went up there and we had radio birds there. And we also had unmarked birds, which was telling us the birds from the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, but people may not realize we had 568 prairie chickens we translocated over nine years. Wow. They were all radioed. We went into every nest. We went in over 100 nests. Jeez. And we that was most for John Wallenberg and I. That was our volunteer work. There would be times where we'd run up, get prairie chickens our own time, Saturday and Sunday, bring them down, let them go, be at work Monday morning, and then we had a schedule of people. So it was probably one of the largest. You know, they're doing it now with sharp tails into Wisconsin. That pales in comparison to what we did with prairie chickens. And we gave it a good try. Things were looking up. Um, uh, parasitism with pheasants was it was an issue. Uh, there, I think there were some other things going on that we learned from. And ultimately, it was a little bit painful because once we stopped uh, moving birds in, bringing in the hen component, then we just watched things slowly decline. And I think I watched the last, you know, Hamstrums talk about the last booming male in Wisconsin. There's been a lot of, you know, 
famous literature on that from the hamstrums and prairie chickens. I digress, but I watched it slowly go down from, you know, 100 males slowly contract to where I was out there with the last wow. uh, prairie chicken. Sharp tails came in on their own, so now we have mm. sharp tails, and, and maybe that you could look in hindsight and say that was the better grouse. Mm. Uh, because we have them over in the Katoa, South Dakota. They've always been coming into Minnesota, but again, they're not, they're at a different status than prairie chickens are. So, but I mean, but really what that project did, it really got us, you know, hey, we're going to bring prairie chickens in here. And that got us looking around and look at all these trees. Oh. We don't have a prairie horizon. So we, that's what really started the tree removal effort in Minnesota. There was, nobody was removing trees on the prairie really honestly before we started a chicken project and we started in a big way then other managers started noticing and they started talking started snowballing and pretty soon it started throughout the whole western part of minnesota and i think i'll really give that credit to the to the prairie chicken project it was like we're going to bring prairie chickens in here and look at all the trees we have but you know nonetheless the the metal arts up on sandpipers everything that needs a prairie horizon uh so and I think so, yeah, the tree room, we have at Lack of Parle, uh, some fabulous prairie horizons that are there due to management, not, they, they were treating close prairies, and now you can open up, you can see for five, ten miles of prairie horizon. That's pretty special, too. So. That's one of my favorite parts about that area. That's awesome. And that gives us a perfect segue. It does. To kind of our next section. Jess, what, what time is it? Let's science to the literature. That was a perfect segue. So this is a section where we we talk about science and how it relates to what we're talking about today, which is Lac Parle. And so we we want to highlight several different papers. One is one that Dave Trava was an author on um, with uh, what was her first name? Justine. Jackie. 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 Yeah. Augustine. That's where I was getting the Ean. Ean. Um, So this paper was in Journal of Ethology, um, which it refers to behavior, really, ethology. Um, potential, and the title is Potential for Behavioral Reproductive Isolation Between Greater Prairie Chickens and Sharp-Tailed Grouse in Western Minnesota, West Central Minnesota. So this was published in 2015. So were there still prairie chickens there in 2015? No, they had, no. by that time, we are well, let's see. No, I would say sharp tails, but chickens had blinked out. So we did that work. Okay. And I'm going to give Jackie the credit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was the, the field person. I I did a lot of the counts and the booming ground counts and, and, and stuff that I fed into that paper. But uh, that would have been done in the late 90s into the early 2000s. Okay. And Jackie was a professor at uh, at Marshall at the time at the university. So, so prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse, for those that don't know, hybridized. And so that this paper shows that hybrids made up about 8% of the population, which apparently is relatively large where these two species co-occur. So that 8% is higher than usual. And what I found really cool, I don't know very much about prairie chickens and and sharp-tailed grouse, but the foot stomping behaviors of the the intermediates of the hybrids, they foot stomped faster. Yeah. Than, oh, yeah. than their parents, which is just super cool. So this may provide some reproductive isolation if the foot stomping is faster than the parents and they're not going to continue to hybridize. But the fact that they were really small population sizes led to the likely led to the increased hybridization. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when we started a project, John Tepper, you know, he said, uh, 
babe, when we start bringing prairie chickens in, you're going to see sharp tail grouse show up. I mean, he was absolutely mm. right because prairie grouse find prairie grouse. I don't know how it is. You will never go out and find one lone prairie chicken or one lone sharp tail. There's going to be a flock out there. Mm -hmm. So it was a few years in the prairie chicken project, and all of a sudden we have sharp tails showing up on our booming grounds, and and sharp tails dominate chickens. They all run up and just pound chickens. They, they don't fight fair. Sharp tails <laughs> fight differently than prairie chickens. So uh, anyways, and when people came in, interestingly, they said pheasants. Right. Uh, cock pheasants would come on the booming ground and beat up on the prairie chickens. That happened in Illinois, which was also an isolated population. But lack probably never had that. We would have male pheasants on the edge of the booming ground, but they never came in. So my theory was, because we had so many hen pheasants, so that rooster, he's calling his harem hens in. He didn't need to go out and look. In Illinois, you had a much lower pheasant density. So I think you there you had frustrated male pheasants then would go and take out their frustration on the prairie chickens, which they thought were female. So, again, that's another podcast. We can talk more about prairie grouse. Podcast well, number six. Dave Trauba. <laughs> Dave's going to have to start his own podcast. He's liking right. this so much today. Yeah. So the second and final paper gets back to this idea of tree removal. Um, it's this Johnson and Temple paper from 1990 where they were working out at Chippewa, I gather, from the paper. Um, looking at nest predation and brood parasitism in tall grass prairie birds, so what I call grassland birds, from Journal of Wildlife Management. And they really found, you know, just as you were saying, Dave, that there's the nest predation was lower on larger pieces, which there's a lot of in Lac Parle area, and, and away from forest edges, they're going to have um, greater nest success. And on recently burned prairies, which I thought was interesting, maybe it's hmm. providing this heterogeneity that um, you know, increases diversity of birds. Um, so I, that really ties in really well with what you were saying about, you know, this, this move to get rid of the trees or cut down the trees and make more of a prairie landscape and provides that habitat for grass and birds. Yeah. And there's, you know, for listeners, there's a wealth of information on, you know, interior species, fragmentation, large blocks, small blocks. And then there's some great, you know, back when I was really on the woody cover, uh, literature was where they would go out and I think it was in North Dakota where they had shelter bells, you know, linear tree plantings and they would go out and do bird transects and they would find, you know, they were, you know, your more prairie interior species were further away from the tree roll. And then they went out there and actually mechanically removed that tree roll and then went back and did it. And then they could see that the interior species were throughout the area. So that really, you know, there is science behind the tree removal aspect. Mm -hmm, definitely. And, and, you know, and that's a challenge in Minnesota because from an early age, we talk about if you're going to do something for conservation, you plant a tree. And, uh, and, right. and that's our legacy. Right. That's conservation is planting a tree. So when you come out and you're removing trees, that really comes in with what people have heard for a long time. Sort of like Smokey the Bear, and that's neither here nor there. But fire is an important part of our ecology. So. I'm well, going to have to correct you. It's Smokey Bear. Right, it is Smoky Bear. Yeah, Smoky Bear. She's right. Yeah. Okay. But now we have Grassland Month, so we can we can support grasslands in that way, right? right. So yeah. we no more plant trees. No, I'm just kidding. Plant trees is important too, but planting prairies is in the right yeah. spot. Equally in the right, in the right not spots. in the prairie. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess. Take a hike. I think I will. <laughs> 
So now this is the part of the podcast where we're going to highlight some of your amazing public lands. And so it would just be insanity if we didn't feature the Lacparo Refuge that we've been talking about. And so we're not going to go into more details about that because we've already hit it at the beginning of the podcast. 80,000 plus acres in the general vicinity of the refuge that you can go and visit. They've got ducks, they've got geese, they've got pelicans, and they used to have one cormorant. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, yeah. So, Dave, if you, so we got, we asked Dave to pick some of his favorite units that we should definitely visit, and so we're going to ask him to highlight some of them. Now, keep in mind, these are just Dave's faves. I just came up with that hashtag Dave saves. There's some <laughs> there's some other ones, obviously, that you can go and visit. There's a wealth of your public lands in this area. So Dave, tell us some of your faves. Well, the the wildlife area is twenty-eight miles long. So I'm gonna start at the south end and kind of southeast corner and work our way up. So if you're listening, the refuge, the refuge is actually eight thousand acres in size. And I would now that focus would be if you're in the you know, waterfall migrations, I recommend that in, in November. Migrations are coming later or in the spring, March, April, depending on when ice out is. And you can sit there and the, the migration of waterfall is tremendous. But in the refuge portion, you're going to have this smaller prairie. It's going to be more planted prairie. Um, so to get the real prairie vista, then I'm going to encourage people to go to that part of the wildlife area that would be north and west of Highway 40. Highway 40 bisects Lac Pearl Lake in half. And on the north side is what we call the Chippewa Prairie. And that's a big block of grassland that exists between Highway 40 running northwest up to Highway 119. And there, and that's Mesic Prairie. Okay, more of your not too wet, not too dry. It's right, right in the middle. There might and be some rocks around. A lot there. of ro- and that's what makes it cool. And there's a big yep, there's bluff rocks line, there. a big bluff line that you could get on, and you have a, a just a fabulous view of a wet prairie, cattail uh, marshes, and then transitioning into Lac Pearl Lake, um, and then you have all those kind of bouldery erratics, a lot of rocks. Uh, get out there early in the morning. The other one that I would go to would be what we call the Plover Prairie Landscape, and that's probably my, that's my favorite. It's but it's wet prairie, mm-hmm. and that exists west of Marsh Lake, east of Highway 75 on the south side of the Minnesota River. So again, go west of Marsh Lake, east of Highway 75 on the south side of the Minnesota River, and that's a large uh, combination of Nature Conservancy land, WMA lands. And I call that, you know, kind of our Serengeti, if you will. You get out there early in the morning, and it is just loud with bird life. And it, it's wet prairie. And I've been out there when the white lady slippers are doing their thing, and there's like thousands of them. So it's really neat. Wow. And a lot of rock oak crops, too. That's awesome, Dave. I love it. I just want you guys to know, because you can't see us. We We tend to do the podcast with notes. Um, just so that we stay on track, which we did a real great job of doing today. But Dave just has so much to share with us that we, you know, we get into it because we want to share so much with all of you. So I just want you to know while Dave is giving you those directions, he's literally looking at nothing. Those are coming from his brain. I actually just checked his notes page six times while he was giving you those. And those are li- like he, he is so in love with Lac Quaparl that he has a road map of every unit out there of your public lands. So, I mean, 
get out there because if you don't, Dave will, and we can't let him have all the fun. That's the truth. True, true words. I was never supposed. We're never spoken. So, like always, don't forget to check out all these public lands on the DNR Recreation Compass. You can go on there. You can just type in the unit name, and it will pull it up where it is, and you can get right to it. The one thing I will note is some of the prairies that we mentioned are Nature Conservancy property, and you will not find those in the DNR Rec Compass. But you can give a quick the Google search, and the Nature Conservancy does a really, really fabulous job of highlighting all of their units and giving you a nice overview of what you can see there, complete with maps and how to get there, and so they do a real nice job of that. Well, that's about it. What do you wonderful. think? Yeah, wonderful. Dave, thank you so, so much. much. Mm -hmm. oh, I thank had a really you. good time. This is where we just say, no, thank you, but thank you, <laughs> like over and over again. <laughs> so we'll be back. Apparently, Dave Clearly. will be back. We got six podcasts going. <laughs> Apparently, Dave's coming back seven more times. If you enjoyed this, don't worry. There are seven more times to see Dave Drava, conservationist extraordinaire. No, I always learn stuff when I'm with Dave. He, I mean, I remember the first time I met him, I was like, this guy knows things. I better attach myself to him like, <laughs> in a work way. So next time we're going to talk about my favorite topic of all time. I think we need to bring in some uh, flour and some eggs. We're oh, make a cake. We're making a cake. So our next Prairie Pod is on building a seed mix. What goes in the mix makes the cake. And as you all know, don't forget the sugar, which is the diversity. We'll catch you next time on the Prairie Pod. <laughs>